0: A lot of people think that job searches, you know, are very frustrating and looking for a new job is frustrating and it is. Um, I was there. I had, you know, had been unemployed for four months and was full time looking for a job and it is very frustrating and exhausting. Um, and and I think it's because you're consistently having to sell yourself. and.
1: From Viton Career Coaching, it's How I Got Here, a show about business leaders, their resilience and the stories behind their career moves. I'm Vincent Van Van and I've interviewed thousands of job candidates over the years in both recruiting and as a former corporate executive. Now I'm on a mission to help you take the next step in your career. A corporate job opening attracts an average of 250 resumes and just one person is going to get hired. It wasn't all that long ago that I was nervous and frustrated by my job search, but it doesn't have to be this way. You can navigate your career with confidence, spend every day learning, and drive to better yourself. You can be excited about the future. In today's episode, we meet Kelly Franco, who's been in recruiting in the tech industry for the last five years, where she creates meaningful relationships between companies and individuals. In addition to that, she's also a two-time published children's book author. Stick around in this episode where Kelly shares the journey behind how she became a published author while breaking into a career in
0: tech. So I grew up here in the Bay Area. Um, I was one of four one of four children. My parents were definitely go-getters, I would say. My dad worked an hour away and commuted a ton. Um, you know, to provide for us. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom for for all four of us. Mm -hmm. And so when my dad retired, uh, we were out of health benefits. So my mom decided to join the workforce herself. And now she's the assistant to the controller at Google, which my opinion is so cool. That's awesome. You know, I had a a great childhood, had family. I have a huge family, lots of siblings. Yeah, I think I, I really get that that drivenness from my parents and just being so heavily driven themselves.
1: In my conversation with Kelly, you can definitely tell that her family and growing up in Northern California had an impact on her overall work ethic and ultimately her career working in tech.
0: I think just that, you know, that example that I gave of just my mom, you know, kind of picking up the slack and and going in and, and, being able to provide for for her family when my dad couldn't, I think that was an example of okay. Even if you if you don't want to do something, or if you don't, you know, you're com- if you're comfortable and being a stay at home mom, you know, giving everything up to to do what's best for your family was a big lesson for me. That's awesome. Mm-hmm.
1: As you were kind of transitioning out of. College and into navigating the real world. What Mm -hmm. were the things that you know now that you wish you would have known at the time?
0: One of the best pieces of advice that I've ever gotten was that things seem so big until you actually do it. And then after that, it seems like nothing. So I kind of wish that I, you know, knew that these things that seemed so big to me at the time were just going to be another stepping stone and to not stress as much as I did. Um, This uh, piece of advice came from my escrow agent when I was signing the paperwork for my first property I bought all by myself. What he meant was, you know, things look so big and overwhelming and are just that until you do them and then it seems like nothing. So he used the example of when you're buying your first car and that seems like the biggest deal and then you do it and it's behind you and like you don't even think about it. So, you know, when I was thinking about, you know, buying this condo was the biggest deal to me, which it was. Um, and, and then, you know, after that happened, it was, you know, a piece of cake and it just seems like another event that happened in my life. So I think thinking back, just kind of telling myself to not concentrate too much or stress too much on, on things that seem overwhelming.
1: That makes a lot of sense because of the fear of the unknown, right? Like the closing process on a condo or on a house is kind of a daunting process until you go through it. And then you, then you know what to expect.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So throughout your career, you've worked at some notable companies, some notable brands, some Mm -hmm. household names, you know, SurveyMonkey is um, a survey tool that Pretty much everybody, I would say, (laughs) has had experience either building a survey or taking a survey on SurveyMonkey. Mm -hmm. Um, Lift another one um, with how common rideshare is. And, you know, there's only two options in the market uh, for Mm -hmm. rideshare. Um, What were some of the things that you look for in organizations that you're pursuing to join?
0: I think for me, um, culture means a lot. Learning more about you know, the, the, the cultures that these companies are fostering, that is something that I always, you know, make sure I do a lot of research on and make sure I know which kind of team I'm joining. Even if that means really drilling into that during the interview process, I've had some experiences where I hadn't been on the best um, team culture wise. And so After that, this is very, very early on in my career. And so after after learning that, it's something that's always been top of mind when I'm interviewing, just really drilling in not only on the company's culture and how they operate, but but also the team dynamic and how the team needs to work day to day together. Secondly, uh, impact and, and growth, I think I wouldn't want to join a company not knowing where my growth path could lead, or, you know, what are some of the challenges that I'll be tackling? I think a lot of the reasons that people join new companies is because there's new challenges to do. It's not like, or to tackle, it's not so stagnant. It's not, you're just kind of doing the same thing every day. You want to be challenged. That's what's, you know, keeps us going. So I would say those are the two big things.
1: As you've interviewed for your past few roles, have there been organizations, and you don't have to say the name of the company, where red flags have gone up for you, yellow flags have gone up for you, where it's not a good culture, or it's not a culture necessarily that that you thrive in? Like, what are those yellow flags that could be a warning sign?
0: Sure, absolutely. Um, I, I guess I, I, you know, one example that, can, that comes to mind is if, teams aren't as collaborative or um you know teams that don't work together very well or or feel like their their um team members are very siloed and you just kind of come in you do your work you leave um i thrive on teams that are more collaborative and um so that's that's been a yellow flag at some of the places that i've interviewed of just um not having a very collaborative culture
1: yeah. You can always tell when you're interviewing with somebody, whether they're excited to be there, excited, and not just be there as, as in with the interview, but be there mm-hmm. as in being a part of the organization totally. versus somebody who's kind of going through the motions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's very telling as well. Um, absolutely.
1: So talk to me a little bit about the role of a talent sourcer. You know, what are the What are the major things that a talent sourcer does and what should job seekers know about interacting with sourcers and recruiters?
0: Yeah. So a talent sourcer is the difference between a recruiter and a sourcer, um, at least in my experience at the companies I've worked at, is the recruiter is um, someone who will kind of own the entire process, working really closely with the hiring manager and the, the inbound candidates. And that includes applicants and referrals. And then, you know, really taking these candidates through their entire process and and um, and eventually closing them or um, presenting an offer and, and having them accept. What the sourcer's role in this uh, process is, is going out and identifying passive talent um, and, you know, going out into the market uh, sending outreaches and um, trying to entice people to to be interested, and then you know getting on calls with them and and really selling the company. Um, I I've always enjoyed. I, I prefer the, the the sourcing piece just because it's it's very research based and also very creative. I find that I am able to be more creative in my writing and my outreaches and just you know, selling SurveyMonkey or, you know, whatever company um, over the phone and, and really kind of, you know, letting my passion shine through, through that.
1: And I love this because it kind of pulls a, the curtain back a little bit behind the scenes for what's going on with companies. Many companies know that your top talent in the market might be employed, might have another job, might be perfectly happy uh, mm-hmm. at, at that other job. And I remember throughout my career, one of the biggest career moves that I made that moved me across the country, it was a really talented sourcer who convinced me to have a conversation, convinced me to fly across the country and interview for a job that I wasn't even really interested in at the, at the time, but mm-hmm. it like fundamentally changed my life. What are... If you are a job seeker, whether you're a passive job seeker or an active job seeker, what are the things that a job seeker can do to stand out to companies?
0: Yeah. I think one thing, you know, that a lot of people think that job searches, you know, are very frustrating and looking for a new job is frustrating. And it is. Um, I was there. I had, you know, had been unemployed for four months and was full-time looking for a job. And it is very frustrating and exhausting. Um, And, and I think it's because you're consistently having to sell yourself and, to know, you know, you know how great you are, um, but you know these companies and these teams don't know that yet. And so, interviewing and networking and searching um, can be exhausting, especially. You know, I'm naturally an introvert, and so talking and especially talking about myself takes a lot of energy out of me. Um, so, so yeah, I think one of, one thing that I I learned you know, during that process was to really advocate for myself. No one really knows your worth as much as you do. And especially as a woman, I'm constantly reminding myself to advocate, 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 even in my, you know, current role and um, just constantly throughout my career.
1: That's such a great point. Because when you work at a job at a company, the people at that company know how great you are and your body of work and your body of accomplishments And sometimes it could be really easy to make the assumption that somebody else has read your resume so that they already kind of understand those things, which Mm -hmm. unfortunately isn't always the case, or, you know, there's a story behind something Mm -hmm. on your resume that really helps bring things to life. You know, as you're, as you are sourcing talent, um, And as you're going through kind of profiles on LinkedIn, what are some of the common things that either stand out in a good way or automatically, you know, remove somebody from being considered uh, on their LinkedIn profile?
0: Yeah, I always personally, I always enjoy the candidates who, or the people who, sprinkle in something personal about them. I love learning about people and their stories. I think that's also a huge part of why I love being a sorcerer, is because I get to, you know, learn more about what's going on in their world and and what motivates them and what's important to them in their career and what makes them them. And so, um, you know, when people include some personal touches in their LinkedIn profiles, I always feel like I get a little you know a little bit of a peek into their into their lives and um so that's uh, and it just it helps to also humanize right like I feel like in this job it's easy to just be looking at profiles and see people as profiles and you forget sometimes that there are humans behind these these profiles and so getting a little peek into that humanness um, is what I was I always look for
1: I think that's the advantage too, that you have so much more flexibility on LinkedIn versus Mm -hmm. a resume where it's a little bit more rigid, a little bit more formal. Mm -hmm. Um, And the norms there are just not the same in terms of being able to put a little bit of your personality out there. Like Mm -hmm. When you think back to the person who is able to tell their story the best, what did that person, what did he or she do on their LinkedIn profile that really stood out?
0: Um, some examples that I can think of off the, off the top of my head. Um, there was a candidate I came across uh, before that was like, you know, whatever their title was. And then, uh, you know, however many years they had in the industry. And then the third bullet was Disneyland annual cardholder or <laughs> an avid Starbucks drinker or something that you don't see every day. Um, I know for me, I made the decision to include the fact that I uh, had published two children's books, and that's not something that, you know, you would normally put on your LinkedIn because it's it's mainly for, you know, your main career but I've gotten a lot of great feedback especially from candidates who I talk to and you know they do their own research before our call and they'll they'll say things like that was really refreshing for for me to see that now I feel like I know so much more about you or um just anything you've done in your personal life you know volunteered I see a lot of you know volunteer experience on there and that's that really helps to you know show what they're passionate about um
1: that's so funny. That. About about 10 years ago, I asked everybody that I knew, everybody that I worked with to endorse me on LinkedIn for mm. a skill, which a lot of people you know, have skills on their LinkedIn. But the one I asked everybody to endorse me for was French press coffee. And mm. <laughs> I told everybody in the office that I would make them a cup of coffee to prove that my French press coffee was really awesome. And then... Uh, it got to the point where that like rose on my profile and ended up being one of the one of my top skills, which is kind of a oh funny gosh. thing to have as like one of your top skills. But um, it's kind of crazy how many conversations have started as a result of that um, in terms mm-hmm. of like you said, it just kind of sparks this little thing that you end up having a conversation about. And it really makes a conversation a lot more memorable than comparing you know, a bunch of people where their backgrounds look about the same, their profiles look about the same, and there's not really anything that like separates and makes somebody stand out. Tell me a little bit about the process of like, what made you want to write a children's book? And like, what did you learn from that experience going through it?
0: Yeah, so my first book was published in 2016. And I had written the story a few years prior. And it just kind of Sat on my computer. It wasn't really something. It was kind of a lofty goal for me. I was like, oh, maybe one day I'll, I'll do something with it. Um, and then uh, I had gone something, gone through something pretty personal in my life, and so I needed something to really throw my, all of my energy into. And so I was like, now is the time. I feel like this is this is probably would be the biggest distraction. And so um, I. I found an illustrator. I found a, a designer, a lawyer, an editor. You know, just kind of assembled this little team and decided that I wanted to self-publish because there are two avenues you can go down when you're publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could either traditionally publish with a, a publishing house, or you could choose to self-publish, which was a, which is a lot more upfront work and cost. Um, mm-hmm. But, for me, the important thing was you know getting it out there in in a timely manner. sometimes when you traditionally publish it it'll take several years to to get picked up and so and i also the other thing was that I wanted to uh, retain control over the decisions that were made for the book. Um, again, like if you sometimes if you go with the tr- traditional publishing house you don't, you kind of hand over your rights and and they, you know, kind of make decisions as they see fit. So because this was my first project, I wanted to make all the decisions myself and be involved in every step that I could. And I very much was. Um, And it, yeah. And it was such a labor of love and, you know, ton of work, ton of, you know, Uh, late nights, but, um, I couldn't be prouder. And then, you know, a year later I, I stuck with my same team and we were able to publish a second book, which was, it just been very rewarding just to have, you know, this physical project that you poured your heart and soul into, um, and be able to share it with the world, share it with kids and just. Seeing kids' reactions is my favorite thing ever. I, I do a lot of, well, not these days, but I, I, in the past, I've done a lot of school tours where I'll, I'll go to different elementary schools and, and read my story to kids and have like these author events and just seeing the way kids react to it and seeing them smile and seeing them ask questions, it's, um, it's pretty indescribable.
1: That's awesome. It sounds like one of those things like you had described before that it seems like this really big, daunting thing. Like I don't even know where I would get started, yeah. you know, finding an illustrator that I loved and like finding an attorney to be able to guide through the process. But that's really awesome. For anybody who's listening, uh, kellyfranco.com. That's kelly-franco.com. Um, check it out. Uh, the two books are A Tale of Two Friends and Oh, The Possibilities. And The Possibilities is P-A-W-S. abilities. Thank you. Um, so what's really kind of incredible is like, as you tell these stories about the process of writing the book, your passion really comes through, right? You, you naturally kind of just light up because you're talking about something that you're excited about. I'd imagine talking to job candidates that those are the things that really, um, really make a difference too, as you're having conversations, um, with folks.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think. And that's what's, you know, going back to your original question of why you join companies. I think I'm, I'm very much a product nerd in that sense, too. Of I have to be passionate about the company that I'm working for. I have to believe in it or else, you know, my job isn't authentic. And, you know, these conversations I have with candidates are just not authentic. So I believe in SurveyMonkey. I think SurveyMonkey is a great tool. I, you know, will... I love talking about SurveyMonkey and so I think that's that's what makes my job so easy. Um, it's because it's a product that I used most of my adult life and use still to this day and have seen the impact it has on, on people and customers. And
1: Tell me about the areas of the business that you support for SurveyMonkey and what advice would you give to somebody looking to get into that functional area?
0: So my role is kind of unique in the, in the sense that I'm kind of branded as the pinch hitter. I kind of work everywhere. We have some sourcers on our team who are just um, on the technical side, engineering, design, product, and then some who are just on the sales side, some who just do executive recruiting. I kind of have my hands in every pot, which is cool for me. I, that's what I like about sourcing is just the variety. I think if I was doing one thing all the time, I would get bored Um, so I enjoy learning about all the different areas of of the business and and getting into that
1: so throughout your career you've had experience recruiting for a variety of roles a pretty broad set of roles Um, specifically on technical roles what advice would you give to folks who are interested in a career whether it's in engineering whether it's in data science whether it's and you know to be an engineering manager like what advice would you give to somebody who wants to be able to pursue a career in that area?
0: Yeah, I think personally, so as a, as a sourcer, as someone in the recruiting function, I get a lot of people who contact me on LinkedIn and, you know, you know, multiple times a week asking about a job that we don't even offer at SurveyMonkey. And, you know, some of them are are way off. And I wish that I think one piece of advice is that I would wish people would do more research when looking at a potential employer. Um, You know, personally, I think people who, who don't do their research, it's always really easy to tell. Um, So one piece of advice is I would say, get to know, you know, the, their, the company's brand. If a certain company that you're going after, get to know their brand, their communication style, um, look into their open jobs and, Contact the most applicable person at the company. Um, if there's a person at the company whose title is sales recruiter, for example, and you're looking for a position within sales or um, engineering, like your like your example, you would you know you would contact them um, as an example. So you know the head of engineering uh, that would be probably the best person to get to. I have. Um, story that kind of correlates with that and this could go for both tech and non-tech when I was looking for a job I was unemployed so there was a lot of pressure to find a job pretty quickly so um, at the beginning I was mainly just you know applying blindly to job postings and not really hearing anything back and I found that that was not working for me so I decided to directly contact the VPs or heads of talent at the companies I was targeting and ask for just 30 minutes of their time, 15 minutes of their time, just to have a conversation. And a lot of times these companies didn't even have jobs open or talent or um, for talent professionals. So what I found was, you know, mostly everyone was at least open to talking to me just for 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And that's what led me to Lyft, actually. Um, And so for me, you know, being in the recruiting field for someone else that may look different, you know, VP of engineering, head of marketing, things like that. But just making those those connections goes a long way, because then when they do have an opening, you'll be the first person who pops up in their mind because they know you, they know your work, they have that rapport you built.
1: Yeah, it makes such a difference when that rapport is already built versus Mm -hmm. just applying on a website where hundreds of other people have applied for that role. And especially Mm -hmm. if the role is posted on LinkedIn, you know, as soon as there's an easy apply button, you're talking thousands of people that have applied for it. Mm -hmm. Reaching out to somebody cold that you don't know is somewhat terrifying. Walk me through (laughs) kind of what was going through your head and kind of how you approach that.
0: So the way I approached it was I wanted to be very conversational. I've seen, you know, people reach out to me in the past that, you know, are very robotic or scripted. And I wanted to, again, kind of humanize myself. And so I would literally just reach out and say, Hey, I'm Kelly. I'm in the recruiting field looking for my next role. Any chance you have 15 minutes just to chat or, you know, I know that you don't have any roles open, but, um, you know, just, uh, like, would you be open to a conversation, or um, just keeping it very short, Um, that was my approach, just because that's how, that's something I would have responded to, and it went a long way, I mean, you know, like I said, I, most of the people I reached out to, we're interested in at least having that conversation. And a lot of them I still keep in touch with to this day, which, you know, is again, beneficial for my future career. I have those contacts. I have those uh, relationships built.
1: Yeah. What I love about that is short and sweet. I think a lot of people Mm -hmm. overthink it. And Mm -hmm. I know for me, if I get a, unfortunately a lot of, Spam on my LinkedIn account, and mm-hmm. a lot of people who are authentically reaching out and want to connect. But anytime I see four paragraphs or just a wall of text, it's like mm-hmm. my brain just turns off. <laughs> and, you know, I, I see the first and maybe the last sentence of it, but those short and sweet messages really matter to your point.
0: Yeah, because it makes you think when you see that wall of text, it makes you kind of feel like. I guess it's the same with with sourcing outreaches it makes you feel like you're just being spammed or or that person is sending that to to lots of different people and so you don't feel you know like it's personal. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Some of the best advice that I've gotten on LinkedIn is to treat LinkedIn messages more like text messages, less like letters. Mm-hmm. Um because you know, when you hit, really hit the sweet spot and somebody replies, especially if you have the LinkedIn app installed on your phone and you get that notification right away, man, if you can get them while they're actively in their inbox, a lot of the times it just turns into a literally a chat um, mm-hmm. and you're chatting live back and forth and nothing's better than that, especially for trying to schedule a conversation.
0: Yeah, exactly. If you could get them like while they're in line at Starbucks or pushing their kid on the swings of the park, if you know, those are when people are checking their emails and checking their inboxes. So part of my job is, you know, kind of figuring out those times of when people are looking at their inboxes and, and you know, during the work day is, is not always the best. That's, you know, part of our analytics of how we um, send out outreaches at, at a time that's most applicable to to you know people reading it hopefully
1: so if you were to reach out to a head of a department let's say that's a head of engineering let's say it's a head of Mm -hmm. HR head of talent maybe it's a head of marketing Mm um on the you know could be any role like what are the times that you would send that message today knowing what you know now
0: well so back then I sent them I think during the day and I got a lot of responses but I I think knowing what I know now I, I don't think I would change that to be honest because as a talent professional, we're I mean at least everyone I know has their LinkedIn profile up all the time and is, is always answering emails and messages on LinkedIn's. That's part of our job. So So, yeah, I would say that at least for a a talent professional um, now ahead of marketing or ahead of engineering, I probably wouldn't do that same thing just because chances are they haven't looked at their LinkedIn in in months, years, um, updated it. Um, And so I would probably probably wait until maybe the end of the day, um, evening time, um, because, you know, even if they're not looking at their LinkedIn, um, you know, maybe they're looking at their personal email and hopefully their LinkedIn messages are getting pushed to their, to their personal email. Um, so I would probably say like the evening time is, you know, when people are, you know, not working as much, unwinding a little bit, catching up on personal stuff.
1: Yeah, I agree. That eight to nine thirty PM time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I know for me, that's when I dig out of email jail. If I'm, yeah. <laughs> if I'm, if I'm backlogged, that's, uh, that's exactly when I dig myself out. There might be folks right now who are thinking, gosh, during a pandemic, I should just be happy that I have a job. Mm. But they might not be happy at that job. Like, What are the considerations that somebody should think through right now as they're considering whether they should stay or whether they should start pursuing a new opportunity?
0: Yeah, I think you bring up a good point of you know, being in this you know, pandemic world that we're, we're just kind of like, like you said, you're, you're lucky to still be employed. So, you know, you just need to stick it out and, and just be thankful. Going back to what motivates me, if you're not being challenged, if you feel like your day-to-day is getting kind of stagnant and you're not learning, um, then that's a major red flag that i would say that i would you know encourage someone to to at least start looking to see what else is out there you never know my philosophy is always have your your eyes open to to what else is out there because you know you don't know what you don't know and so like you said earlier in your case that you wouldn't have, have even known of um So, yeah, I would say, you know, not being challenged, not, um, not learning as an individual. And, um, you know, if I know sometimes, you know, people will be at companies for many, many years and then, you know, the company decides to go a different way or new leadership comes in and and things kind of change to maybe not that person's liking. And so, you know, that has, you know, sparked some a lot of, you know, at least based on the candidates that I've talked to, that's has sparked interest in, in looking elsewhere as well.
1: It sounds like it's never a bad idea to keep your LinkedIn profile up to
0: date. Never a bad idea. (laughs) Um, yeah, like I said, I I always enjoy talking to the people who are like, well, I mean, I'm, I'm super happy. I just want to know what else is out there. I just want to, and I think that's the best mindset to be in is even if you are super happy and are being challenged and are learning, you know, you never know what else is out there. And so I'm um, just being super forward thinking and, and open to that.
1: Yeah. I had a manager at one point tell me, always take the call. And it, I always thought mm-hmm. it was, it was odd for my manager at the time to tell yeah. me that. But one of the life lessons that I learned is it's always good to take the call when you get a call from a sorcerer from a recruiter at another company, because mm-hmm. if you say no there's a good chance somebody on your team might get that call next. Mm-hmm. And it's never a bad idea to know what you're going to be up against in terms of trying to retain your talent too, if you're a mm-hmm. manager on a team. Um, what's a Tell me about a mistake that you've seen somebody make during a job search process. And how can somebody avoid
0: that? I mean, kind of going back to not doing enough research. and And I don't expect a lot of research, especially I'm reaching out to people who may have not even known about Surrey Monkey, you know, an hour ago. And so, um, I don't expect people to do a ton of research, but at least after the first conversation and, and it, you know, if they want to move forward, I think setting yourself up for success is the best thing you can do. And you can do that by, you know, doing research into the company. And like I said, you know, getting to know their brand and, and, um, anything else that that you could use in your in your interview um, and ask questions about? I think SurveyMonkey especially is a company that's founded on asking questions, so we value people who are curious and asking questions all the time and and kind of going deeper. And so um, I think the most research you can do, even if you are a passive candidate and you know someone reached out to you. It's still your job as a as a candidate to to bring those questions and to bring that insight. Um, if if it is in fact a company that you weren't initially interested in, but you know the more conversations you had, you got more interested. I think something that can really set you up for success is is making sure you do that research.
1: Tell me about what you did to prepare for your interviews at SurveyMonkey. How much time did you spend preparing, and what were some of the things that you researched or looked into?
0: Oh, I I had been following SurveyMonkey Monkey for years and I had always kind of seen them as a, one of my north star companies and I was like, wow, I would love to work for them one day. And so, um I had reached out to I had when I was unemployed, I had gotten referred in um not for a particular job, but just to just kind of have an open conversation. And I talked to one of our recruiters and, um, had kind of, you know, it wasn't the right timing, but had kept in touch with him for a really long time. And, you know, I checked in a few times like, Hey, are you guys hiring it? Are you guys hiring it? And, uh, finally our, they had just hired a new head of sourcing. And, uh, so it was, I was at Lyft at the time and, um, it was. it finally felt like the right time. The reason that I had initially entertained SurveyMonkey was because, like I said, they were you know had always been a company that I had looked up to. So the more conversations I had, I you know got more and more excited. I you know, you know used those conversations as data points of you know in making my decision. And so, so yeah, I I mean I pre- I prepared a lot for my for my interviews at SurveyMonkey because. I, it was important to me, and it was, you know, I told myself if it was some, if this is somewhere that you really want to work, and this is something that you've been wanting for a long time, to really um, give it your all and to and to prepare as much as I could.
1: I was talking to a group of job seekers a week or two ago, and somebody in the group said I always spend eight, about eight hours preparing for panel interviews. And Mm -hmm. it was really interesting because there were other people in the group who were kind of surprised by that statement. But I think what's really telling though is that if you're a job seeker and you don't do that, that means that you're likely up against somebody else who has done that level of research. And, you know, that Mm -hmm. research in terms of table stakes, just, you know, especially when you have a publicly traded company, there's so much information out there and available earnings reports to be able to understand what initiatives and what priorities a company has right now. And potentially even to be able to have a conversation about how projects that team is working on mm-hmm. could contribute to the overall organization's goals. And mm-hmm. so, you know, there's so much out there, but I know back when uh, I was working and recruiting like one of my pet peeves, not maybe pet is the wrong word for it, but you know, I was always surprised by candidates who would ask questions where the answer was literally like on the career website.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it kind of just showed that that person didn't do the legwork to be able to mm-hmm. learn it themselves before asking the question.
0: Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. I get, I get that a lot. And like I said, I give candidates a pass when that happens because you know, I reached out to them But the more they move through the process and, you know, if they still haven't, you know, are still asking those kind of questions or, um, you know, still aren't, you know, bringing their best self in terms of, um, knowing about the company, I think that can really hurt them.
1: Yeah. Um, what's something that you've failed at recently and what'd you learn from the process?
0: So to me, failure is is about not meeting expectations, others as well as my own. Um, so every quarter we have metrics that we're encouraged to hit, and and truth be told, this last quarter I didn't I didn't hit my offer goal for the quarter, um, and there are lots of factors that that play into this. Um, you know, every role that I'm working on, every search has a story and. Um, you know, while there isn't any penalty for not hitting our goals, I, I personally feel that I, that I failed and I'm very hard on myself and and that sucked. But what I, what I did was I worked twice as hard this quarter and, and really, you know, dedicated myself and, and I'm on track to hit my goal, hopefully this quarter. So I think it's all about the rebound and, and, and what you, what you learn from it.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Um, What are some of the best resources that have helped you along the way throughout your career?
0: I think having a mentor or a variety of mentors has really helped me. Having someone you can bounce ideas and questions off of, um, I I would strongly suggest that. And it doesn't have to be someone on your, my mentors are actually people who are outside of talent acquisitions or leaders within the organization that I've um, grown really close with um, and just get as much advice as you can, um, you know, solicited or not. Um, yeah, that's, that. you know, feedback is fuel as, as we like to say at SurveyMonkey. And, you know, the more feedback you can get um, from people who have gone through the, these, a lot of these same situations um, is best.
1: Tell me about one of your mentors and how did that relationship come to be?
0: Yeah. So one of, um, one of my mentors is uh, another leader in, within the company, uh, not in talent acquisition. And um, I had worked with her on uh, filling a few of her roles within her organization. She's at the VP level and we really just kind of bonded over, over the, the search. And, you know, she had said many times to a lot of different people that she loved my work, work ethic and, you know, saw how professional I was and I quickly realized that she was you know one of my biggest champions and someone that I could you know really and I could really use that um you know just in terms of of getting advice and and bouncing things off of like I said so um so yeah I think um that's, you know, it kind of came through in a natural way, but, you know, I really honed in on it because I, I, you know, I think one of the most important things is, is identifying your champions and knowing who your biggest supporters are and, and really channeling that and leveraging them.
1: Yeah, the language there, champions ends up being really important too, because you were talking about earlier in this episode, being able to advocate for yourself. But Mm -hmm. a lot of the times in the job search process or in the promotion process, if you have a champion advocating for you, oftentimes Mm -hmm. that's even better than advocating Mm -hmm. for yourself.
0: Totally. Yep. Yeah. And, and that was, you know, we do um, quarterly or or bi-yearly feedback cycles and I made sure to include her in that um, because I knew that, you know, I, I, she would have a lot of great things to say and she would, be instrumental in, you know, in my career career. growth.
1: One last question for you. Where can our listeners connect with you online?
0: So I'm on LinkedIn, Kelly Franco, um, Monkey, And, uh, you know, like you mentioned earlier, my website for my books is kelly-franco.com. Those are probably be the best two places to contact me.
1: Awesome. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. It's been great chatting with you.
0: Thank you for having me, Vincent. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the show this week. If this podcast was helpful to you, the best thing that you can do to support is please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts. This helps us help more people just like you move towards the life that they desire. Visit our podcast on Apple Podcasts, then scroll to the bottom. Tap the rate with five stars and just leave a sentence or two about what you loved most about this episode. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts or you can write at hello at com. I'm Vincent Fanvan Van and you've been listening to How I Got Here. This podcast is brought to you by Viten Career Coaching.